You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. It is my delight uh, to be with you. Yes, this is first time, first time down this way. I, uh, my family worships at Frontline up north, yeah. And uh, I guess I, I don't know what to call myself. People always ask, in fact, Brad asked me beforehand, how do you want to be introduced? And I'm like, I, I don't know, guy who walks around with a notebook in his hand, I don't know. I guess I'm the, uh, I'm the pinch hitter, the utility infielder. Whenever there's a hole on the calendar in one of the zero collective churches, um, often I, I'm the guy they, they, they call because I can bat right or left-handed, I, I don't, however that works, I don't know. No, I, I am... I am delighted to be with you this morning. In truth, I'm just—I'm actually just delighted to be anywhere. Um, in October, I had my second uh, bout of COVID, and yeah, well, I mean, it, uh, we won't do a raise of hands, but I'm sure lots of you have been through that. Mine was not the worst possible scenario. I mean, there wasn't a hospital involved or anything like that, but man, those uh, those symptoms are persistent. They dog you. I can still kind of <clears throat> feel it a, a little bit. And uh, in the throes of that, someone, I don't remember who, someone asked me, well, you know, how are you doing? You know, what's, what's it like? And I kind of heard myself say, man, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Um, which is kind of a throwaway thing to say, right? Because it's not like I could wish it on my worst enemy. It's not like within my power. It's, a, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a way of saying that uh, what I'm going through really stinks. You know, I've said it. Several times in my life, you've probably said it, but as it came out of my mouth that time in that space, God sort of whacked me on the back of my head with the question of like, well, what do you really mean by that? You suddenly had the power to wish this on your worst enemy. Would you? See, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who, you know, I stand here this morning before you as a, a person who actually has or have had people in my life that you, who you could consider my enemies. I don't mean anything, you know, like the Taliban. I don't think anyone's ever, like, taken out a contract on me or anything like that that I know of. <laughs> well, we'll wait and see. <laughs> and the word enemy is a bit of an odd word to use for, for that, but it's the word Jesus is going to use, so I'm going to stick with it this morning. People who actively work against your interests... People who rejoice in your, in your troubles, as the Germans call it, schadenfreude, to rejoice in the troubles of your enemies. Now, I don't want you to think that what I'm up, standing up here doing is sort of whining about injustices done to me, not at all. It's actually kind of the opposite. When I, when I use a word like enemies or my enemies, what I really I have to confess to you this morning is, I, I mean, people who actually have cause to, to dislike me because I've... I've done things in my life that actually deserve enemies. Maybe I'm not alone. I didn't come here this morning to actually get into to, to my story, my backstory a little bit. There's just, there's just not time. Uh, but if you'd like to know more, I mean, you have a, a sense of like wanting to know who's standing up in front of you, I will direct you to, I have a, uh, 
a book coming out in January, which will actually talk a bit about my journey. Ten years ago, I was a pastor of a church, just very similar to this, a professor at a local seminary and everything. And over the course of ten months, in the fit of clinical depression and a, a hideous cocktail of bad choices, I blew up my life and threw it all away. And uh, the last 10 years have been a, what did you say, a, a redemptive story, a, a, a putting of life back together, a restoring of my marriage and all that kind of thing. But the, the book itself came out of that, Hope for People Who've Blown It, a book to help people whose greatest wounds in life are self-inflicted, whose greatest regrets are self-imposed. How do those people put their life back together and sort of re-enter the world and society with meaning. And so I point you more specifically to the website there, bellowingofcain.com. If you'd like to know more about my story, I just I offer that to you. Because when I, when I speak of my enemies this morning, what I mean is this, that I made a great and terrible wreck of a whole bunch of things, and I hurt a lot of people. And there's just no way around that. But of course, you know how such things work. You never make your decisions in a vacuum. You get to pick your choices. You don't get to pick your consequences, right? So after I made my choices... A lot of other people got to make their choices, right? And those choices often were this mixture of justice and a lot of needless pain for me and my family. And so I found myself in a situation, and again, perhaps you've been there, where I, who had much to be forgiven of, also found myself taking a journey in learning to forgive. The lines get messy. And so when I talk about enemies, I talk about me taking a journey of learning to forgive people who worked actively against my interests and for my destruction. And I don't have another word for such people uh, other than enemies, like I was to them. And now God was really asking me to think about, as I made that little flippant comment about not wishing this disease upon my worst enemies, Jeremy, do you really mean it? How thoroughly have you forgiven? If you had the power of retribution, if you had the power of your own version of justice, would you take it? What does the gospel say about our enemies? What does it say to them? What does it say to us about the people who actively work against our interests? I don't want to be abstract this morning. The idea of enemies isn't a very abstract word, and we tend to associate all kinds of like useless things with it, like the Taliban or something to that effect. But I, we need to be much more personal about this. Who in your life has hurt you most? A family member? Maybe you just had to sit across the table from them this week? That person who makes your life a perpetual living hell? Maybe it's a person in your past, the one you have that long-standing grudge against from your childhood or college. The person responsible for that layoff or your financial distress, your emotional or, or even sometimes physical wounds. Who is it? Sadly, it can even be spouses, children, parents, roommates, friends. This must not be an abstract conversation this morning. Who is that person? I want their face to swim before your mind's eye as we move forward this morning. Who is your enemy? Who rejoices in your struggles, or at least is 
more or less the cause of them. There's nothing more concrete in the world than our enemies. What does the gospel say about them? Well, we're going to go right to the horse's mouth this morning. We're going to go to Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's the longest uh, continual sermon we actually have in the Gospels. That is, of course, unless Matthew is not stitching together a bunch of sermons. We just can't know these things. But there it is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, this really long sermon of Jesus, where he begins in chapter 5. You'll remember bits in these pieces. It's some of the most uh, well-known words of Jesus. He begins chapter 5 with what are called the Beatitudes, where we talk about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those when people persecute you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. People who, like when these things happen to us, we actually don't really consider ourselves blessed. But Jesus is already, from the very first words of the sermon, subverting our expectations. He's turning the world inside out on us. And after the Beatitudes in chapter 5, he rolls into six very specific types of teaching. Every one of them, people group them together as a kind of another set of teachings here at the end of chapter 5 because they all follow the same format. They begin with Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I now say to you, all six of these teachings are going to have that kind of formula about it. And in these, he has dealt with a whole lot of hot button issues that must have caused great discomfort to his first hearers as well as us. Issues like divorce, adultery, lust, murder, vengeance, you know, all the fun ones. And now he comes to the final and sixth uh, of these teachings in the chapter, and it's a discussion of enemies. What does the good news of Jesus Christ have to say to people like you and me, people who have enemies? Well, I, I want to warn you right here up front. This is going to be hard. These are going to be hard words. He begins in verse 43 this way. He says, you have heard that it was said. See, I told you it was coming. Here it is. You have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, pause there for a minute. Now, in truth, we, we don't know exactly who Jesus is referring to here. Who, who is it that they have heard it said from? Is there a specific teacher or someone that he's referring to? I mean, most of these, these six things where Jesus works through, he's correcting some kind of misunderstanding, often about the Old Testament law. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find nowhere in the Old Testament does it actually say this. This isn't something that you got from the Old Testament directly. It's not a quotation or anything like that. When you read the Old Testament, you will find bits and pieces of stuff stitched together. You will find a lot in the Old Testament about loving your neighbors, meaning loving those people that are in your little circle, your brethren, your fellow Jews in that context, those in our little circle. You will also find lots of things about how to treat what justice looks like to those who are kind of outside the circle, you know, the, the stranger, the foreigner, the poor in your midst, things like that. Issues of men and women and issues of power, you'll find that discussed. But that said, you flip the coin over, you'll also find a lot in the Old Testament that kind of speaks to the other half you read the Psalms and the prophets, and you find them often very angry, saying very disturbing things about Israel's enemies, really popping off in the midst of their agony or their sorrow or their defeat or their anger. Lord, bless he who dashes their children against stones. The whole pastiche of stuff going on in the Old Testament. But you'll never find this statement that Jesus talks about. 
So it leads me to believe that Jesus is, is not necessarily talking about some pr- specific parochial little teacher in their midst, like, you know, Rabbi so-and-so over here who says. It seems more likely, in my opinion, what Jesus is talking about is merely the default condition of the human heart. The sort of common sense wisdom we all bring to the table and we all accept without thinking about it. You love your neighbors and you hate your enemies. Well, of course, that's what all people do. It's as if he were saying to us, I mean, I know your heart tells you that you're supposed to love those that are nice to you and hate those who aren't, but. And this does make a little sense because it does seem to be the default condition of the human heart to love those within our own camp and to hate or at very least mistrust those who are outside. Those who don't look or act or think like us. And it's as true today as it must have been then. We, we see it played out all the times in politics and social media. We just came through an election season. God help us all. There were those of you in the room that were like, woo, and those of you in the room that were like, oh. And, right? and you know how it works. You've been on social media during the season. You know that people that align themselves with whatever you're, well, I'm a Republican like me or I'm a Democrat like me. People who are like you, it actually doesn't matter what kind of wretched human beings they are Otherwise, they're in my camp, therefore they're on my side. So I say nice things about them. And conversely, you may be the nicest person in the world. You may have all your ducks in a row. You may be kind, generous, thoughtful. But if you don't agree with me on the issues, if you're part of the other party, if you're red or blue, if you think the opposite of me about Proposal X, you may be the nicest person in the world. You're still my enemy. And we've all seen this go down. It's the default setting. It's the common sense position of the human heart. So what it means is, Jesus may not be talking about a particular teacher or teaching. He may be talking about all of us. He is probably talking not just to his first hearers. He's talking to us here today as well. Because what was true of them is probably true of us. Now, I'm going to take this a little out of order. This is just for teaching purposes. There's nothing else going on here. Before I tell you what Jesus said we ought to do, you know, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But before I tell you what he says, I'm going to jump ahead because I want you to understand why it is Jesus was so unimpressed with the common sense wisdom, the default position of the human heart. I want you to understand what was wrong, what is wrong with simply loving those who love you and hating those who don't, the infinitely reasonable and safe position. Well, this is what Jesus actually says about it in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you expect to get from that? Even the tax collectors are doing that. You know the tax collectors, the Jewish people who actually were working for Rome. They're the sellouts. They're the traitors. They're actually exacting the Roman taxes from their fellow countrymen. Well, even they are nice to the people who are nice to them. If you greet, literally, if you embrace only your own people, then what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans, do not the Gentiles even do that? So Jesus is saying here is that it requires absolutely nothing from us to be nice to those who are nice to us. It asks nothing special of us to treat with justice those who are on the inside of our little tribe. You might as well say that that a mother deserves high and special praise for caring for her own children. No, that's kind of the minimum bar. That's what you'd expect, right? 
It's like a special praise, a promotion for our lieutenant who takes care of the men in his own platoon. Well, no, that's what the lieutenant is supposed to do. That's the minimum bar. It's like the citizen who joins cause with another citizen to, in some sort of protest or some sort of activity in the country. Well, no, that's not shocking at all. That kind of fraternity is to be expected. These are all the minimum bars of things. Now, and I, you know, I want to agree, in fairness, that the love of one's own companions, the love of one's country, the love of one's own children, the ones of those inside your inner circle, it is a good, it is one of the lesser virtues. It is a good thing to love your country and your companions and those who are like, that's all good. I mean, it certainly beats the alternative, which is treating all people in all nations with contempt and cynicism. That's a far uglier place to be. So it is the default position, but I want you to understand, Jesus did not come to merely reinforce our congenital preferences for people in our own little circle, for people who share our political opinions or our skin pigmentation or our socioeconomic class. We didn't need the Son of God to step out of heaven and walk the earth to tell us God's opinion about those things. Every sage and wiseacre in the history of the world has been telling us this. Love those who love you and hate those who don't. Be nice to those who are nice to you. You might as well say that it's virtuous to walk around saying, I only eat foods that I like. Who doesn't? That's all of us. We didn't need Jesus to tell us to eat foods that we like. It's simply unimpressive. And this morning, Jesus wants more from us. Let me say that a little differently. Today, Jesus wants more for us. So what is it that Jesus advocates, if not the common sense position of all humans in all times and all places? Well, I tell you, Jesus advocates, it's, he's on about it all the time. Jesus advocates for the kingdom of God. You will actually hear him. If you were to keep reading, end of chapter 5, and you were to continue on into chapter 6, you would find another section here right at the beginning of chapter 6 that you know very well. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, and you may know how it goes. Our Father who is in heaven, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth, right here in our midst, just as it is already done before you in heaven. Jesus is about to tell us what it means for God's name to be hallowed, God's will to be done, and God's kingdom to be manifested, not in relation to those that we like, but in relation to those that we don't. And as usual, he is about to ask more of us than we think we can bear. So what is it that he says? Well, verse 44, you have heard it said, love those who love you and Love your neighbors and hate those who don't. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why, Jesus? Why would you say such a thing? I mean, don't you understand? My, my wounds are real and they're deep. My grievances are legitimate. My enemies are ever-present, 
rejoicing in my every trouble. They are, by definition, unlovable. That's why they're my enemies. That's the meaning of the word. And here is Jesus, like in the comic strip, sitting across the table from me with his cup of coffee, saying back to me, I know. I know, says Jesus, believe me, I know. There is just no living with one's enemies. My enemies hung me on a cross. Do not make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is offering cheap and easy words here. Jesus is simply moralizing. No, he knows the cost of what he speaks. Jesus had enemies, and he loved them even to the point of death. He's already told us that he comes to represent his father, his father's name, his father's will, his father's kingdom. He's talked about it all through the Gospels. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father, right? I didn't come to preach my own words, but the words of him who sent me. I cannot do but what I see my Father doing. That's his only interest. He's here to tell us what the Father is like. So here it is. If you want to know what God in heaven is like, if you want to know what's valuable and important to God, who do you look at? You look at Jesus. You look at his life, you look at his decisions, his values, you look at what he does, and he will show you what God in heaven is like. You will see the lineage, the paternity. Now, this is a true situation. We know it from children of all cases. This is why you don't tell your eight-year-old family secrets, because they're going to go to school, and they're going to tell their teacher, and you're going to get a call. Your children will out you sooner or later. That's what children do. You hang around a child long enough, you learn stuff about the parents you wish you didn't know. My, my, we have four children. Uh, my oldest is, is graduated. My youngest is in fourth grade. That's the, that's the span. He's 10. Asher uh, just finished, recently finished up his soccer season at, at school. And, uh, you know, little kid soccer where the positions don't matter and they all just sort of around <laughs> the field in a big huddle. Well, you know, how it works is that when it's time to sub, that's what the coach does. He sends in, like, the second team, which is like nine more kids. Nine kids come off, nine kids go on in a great big pack. Well, on this particular occasion, the coach didn't tell, apparently, Asher where, what position he was supposed to play. Why? Because it doesn't matter. They just run all over. But it matters to Asher, my little engineeringly-minded child. And so he's standing on the sidelines while everyone's running out, and the coach is distracted, pointing. He's like, where am I going, coach? What am I doing? What's my position? What am I going? Well, the coach is busy. So at the, in, the, in about by a in about 10 seconds, this thing has elevated in his mind to the point where he's standing there with feet planted, screaming at the back of his coach, going, where am I going? And now he has the coach's attention, who's looking at him with eyes wide, like, you know, out demon from this child. And I'm sitting on the other side of the field in my chair with my head in my hands going, not my kid, not my kid, not my kid. When sadly, yes. He comes by it honestly. Nobody throws a fit about such things better than I do. The child will out the parents every time. And that's exactly the reason Jesus uses this analogy. I'm here to show you what my father is like. Sometimes it's for the worse our children out us. Sometimes it's for the better. That's exactly what he tells us uh, is the reason we should love our enemies. Verse 45, he says, why, why do this? Why should you love your enemies? Because in verse 45, he says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
When we love our enemies, we reveal both what our heavenly parent is like, what's important to our heavenly father, and also we reveal that we really are children of this parent because we do as God does. Don't forget, that's originally why they were called Christians at Antioch, little Christs. Why? Because they looked, tasted, smelled, had the flavor of Jesus who looked, tasted, smelled, had the flavor of the Father in heaven. We do this because it shows others what God is like. Apparently, we are to love our enemies. Why? Because our Heavenly Father loves His enemies. Yes, He does. So that, of course, begs the question this morning, how, how does the Father love His enemies? Well, Jesus hasn't left us guessing. Verse 45, he also, he, the meaning God here, the Father, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, we tend to think of this, you know, as a positive and negative. We get the good times and the bad times. You're know, like a James Taylor song, you know, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. And you'll find that. In the Bible, Job says something like that. You know, we get the good and the bad. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Sunshine and rain. Remember, this is an agrarian society. They're trying to grow crops to live. And can you think of anything, two things that are more important to growing crops to live other than sunshine and rain? These are both gifts. They're, it's, they're images of blessing. Jesus is saying the Father sends these good and undeserved gifts upon all people, no matter who they are, the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun and the rain falls on them all indiscriminately. They are both gifts of grace, undeserved and unmerited gifts of God upon all people, what our Reformed brothers and sisters will call common grace, a grace poured out upon all people. And the truth appears to be no less scandalous than this. In the very face of people's hatred and rejection, our Heavenly Father responds, how? With sunshine and rain. He does so by meeting the needs of His enemies and causing them to flourish. This is the good news of the gospel for our enemies. Says God, though you hate and despise your maker, yet the sun still rises and the rain still falls. And now Jesus reminds us, you are God's children. Do as God does. Wait, says my heart. Are you really saying, Jesus, that I am to seek my enemy's good, promote his flourishing, and seek justice even for those who hate me, misuse me, and seek my downfall? Yes, I think he is. And surely you feel, like I do, the impossibility of it. I imagine your soul, like mine, rears up on its hind legs at such a, at such a demand, crying out like Cain himself. That, that, that is more than I can bear. Don't ask this of me, Jesus. Anything else but not this. You cannot ask me to love the person who did that to me. It's not fair. It's not right. Once again, there sits Jesus with his cup of coffee, patiently outwaiting my little tantrum. 
graciously waiting for me to collect myself, waiting for the Spirit of God to work gently and slowly and inexorably, shepherding me into that space that Christ himself knew well, that space he occupied the night before his own great mistreatment, a place where you finally are able to breathe the prayer, okay, not my will, yours be done. God, you win again. I will submit, I will obey, I will do as you ask and love the unlovable. But Father, I confess I don't know how. I don't know how to love that person. I don't think I have it in me. And the Father looks down and whispers, I know, I know, but understand this is how it begins. This is but a first step. A willingness and determination to obey even when we don't know how to do it. That is already a victory. So how do you love your enemies? What is the process by which you love the unlovable? That you move past the brokenness that came into your life? Well, I'll be honest. It's going to be an immensely personal journey. I don't have a one-size-fits-all answer. I am not a holy enough man to be able to give you advice. Thankfully, you're not listening to me this morning. That's not why you came. Jesus is about to tell us. Jesus is about to give us a good, solid shove in the right direction. So I draw your attention this morning to the fact that God's love for the divine enemies is not a mere feeling. Or worse, it's not a lie told to oneself to pretend that they're not really wicked and malicious. You'll notice Jesus' actual words. You remember he said that the rain, and the, the rain and, the, and, the, and the sun fall upon who? The good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. He does not excuse or, or, or mock what they really are. He is not ignoring their abominable behavior. To which I say thank God because that doesn't sound right to me at all. Jesus is not here asking us to like our enemies. He is not here telling us to have any particular feeling about them whatsoever. We are asked merely to love them as God does. And how does God love the divine enemies? Well, it's not by means of a feeling, but through actions. It's sunshine and rain. It's pragmatic, not vaguely emotional. Perhaps this is why Jesus did not end with, love your enemies. Remember, he actually said more. He, he went on to a practical point. He said, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. To pray for the welfare of your enemy does not require you to feel anything in particular about them. It's not a feeling at all. It is a choice. A choice that you are already making. Yes or no. It's something that you are able to do even when your feelings are in full revolt. Perhaps you had to pray a prayer like this sometime in your life. Lord... You know I hate having to say this. I don't want to. But I am your child and I want to act like it. So bless them, Father. Preserve their lives and their livelihood, their families and their health. Apparently Jesus knows that this is how we start to love the unlovable. You make the choice to pray for their welfare. 
Now, you know as well as I do that this, this, the idea of praying has fallen upon hard times in a world of social media. Every time there's a tragedy somewhere in the world, people, you know, they flood the, the comments with their good thoughts and prayers. And there's always some wiseacre who chimes in saying, well, go to your thoughts and prayers. Get off your duff and go do something. Right? Send money, pack care packages, do something useful, thoughts and prayers. Pshaw. And I'll be honest, I have some sympathy for, with the critique. If our thoughts and prayers becomes an excuse for not doing anything in particular, well, I, you know, I sympathize with it. Absolutely. Because the truth is, I, I don't know. When, when I pray, I don't pretend to understand the mystery of how, how God takes the prayer I'm uttering today to coordinate the, the events of tomorrow. I, I, I don't pretend to understand that. I do not know how my prayers for my enemy changes them. But I do know something about prayer, something that changes every time prayer is done. It changes me. That's an absolute guarantee. For me to pray this prayer changes me, and it's a lesson we already know from other relationships in life. We love our spouses, our children, our parents, but we do not always like them. Our feelings about them come and go. Sometimes they're passionate, sometimes they're apathetic. Sometimes they're warm, sometimes they're cold. And yet, even in that moment when we've been rubbed completely out of shape by some act of relational terrorism on their part, you still have to think to yourself, and you do often, okay, I understand the claims of love require me not to respond in kind. Somebody's got to be the adult here. But to respond rather with sunshine and rain. Though I do not feel loving towards you right now because, <laughs> because you are hardly lovable in this moment. Yet I will treat you with dignity and respect. And that choice, the choice to pray for our enemies itself becomes an expression of love. Take it as a maxim for all of life. A love that can only do good to a person when the feelings cooperate is not love. It's just personal advantage. Love, to love, does good to the beloved even when the feelings are not there. So we make the decision to pray for our enemies, believing in faith that God can take that little tiny meager obedience and turn it into something greater in good time. Because I don't want to sell it short. Love so expressed in actions has the power not only to transform me, it has the power to transform them in some mystery I don't understand. But, un but please, I'm not promising you that your enemy will hereby become your friend. I can't know that. It doesn't always work that way. But I do know it does happen. I have seen it happen. I know that it happens because I've seen it happen in at least one case. Mine. See, what Jesus says about the Father loving his enemies is not something that happens out there for other people. The Father loved me when I was his enemy. We were all at one time enemies of God. And through God's persistent love of me, God's enemy, I was recalled to life. And so were you. This is the way of the kingdom. As Paul says in his letter to the church at Rome, it is your kindness, O Lord, that leads us to repentance. To love my enemies as God has loved me when I was God's enemy. And with the same end, that they might be restored, given life, and reclaimed for the kingdom. Now, you might say that's impossible. Yes, it is. It is just as impossible as God turning rebels into adopted sons and daughters. 
But I do acknowledge that it is difficult. And so I'd like to put a slight spin on it here as I wrap it up. Just a, just a slight spin. This is to make it perhaps a bit more palatable. This is a la Julie Andrews, the sugar to help the medicine go down. I would like you to take courage from this this morning. Don't feel defeated or threatened by this demand that rests upon you because you don't have the energy or the strength or the knowledge or the willpower or the fortitude or the deep sense of love or commitment to make it happen. Please understand that when everything is stripped away and everything is done, this is not something Jesus is asking you to do out of your own strength. We're not strong enough. We're not good enough. We're not noble enough. Jesus is not asking you to merely gin up enough strength to love the unlovable, as if you could just continue to eat rancid meat sufficiently long enough that you come to like it. What he is really asking you to do when everything is said and done is asking you by means of this one small step of obedience, prayer for your enemies, to be open to what God wishes to do in and through those prayers. It's merely openness. Let your heart remain open. In the end, this is what's really going on with this passage, what Jesus is telling us, that in the end, we are supposed to let God love our enemies through us. I hope that helps a little bit. That Jesus is not telling us we need to start feeling things that we don't feel. Jesus is not telling us we need to start calling evil good. Jesus is not telling us to ignore the wounds we actually carry through life as if, well, your pain just doesn't really matter, just do the thing. Jesus is telling us to make a small, obedient choice to open ourselves up to the work of God so that God may do this work in and through us. I cannot love my enemies. I'm not strong enough and I know it. But God can cause me to do so. God's Spirit can do things in me that I'm unable to do in my own strength. So now we come all the way back around to the beginning, to that person I asked you to think about at the start. Whoever it is, that, that family member, that former co-worker, that person from your past. Do you understand this morning what's being asked of you? It's not vague, it's not cloudy, it's very concrete and specific. We are being asked to pray for that person, for their welfare, for their flourishing, for their yes, for their repentance, for their restoration to God. Jesus is asking you this morning to simply be open to what God wants to do through those prayers. Don't ask me what that is. I don't know. That's God's business and God's timing. Just be obedient. Just do the thing. That is your task. It's really the only thing being asked of you in the next seven days. To, in this one small area, be like your heavenly Father. Pray sunshine and rain on the least lovable person you know. And see where that goes. See what God can do with that. Because remember, your Heavenly Father 
made sons and daughters out of the very people who murdered his son. That is the bar against which our efforts are to be judged. So don't lose hope and don't give up. Just be obedient. Perhaps it is why Jesus ended this whole passage with this reminder, this invitation. Be perfect. Be perfect in this. Be just like your Father in heaven who already loves perfect.